Amen. Well, guys, would you grab hold of a Bible and join us this morning? We are going to be in 2 John. 2 John is where we are on Sunday mornings, verse by verse, making our way through this little letter and excited to be doing so. Hope you brought a Bible. And if you didn't, there are Bibles in front of you and the chairs in front of you with a page number on the screen. You can get there rapidly. We'd love to have you do that. We also just want to, if you want to follow along an electronic device and you open up a Bible program there, again, that's, that, that works well for you to follow along that way. But one way or another, we invite you to the Word. We invite you to the Word of God, that it would be His Word that would speak into your life this morning. It would be that which would make itself known to you and at work inside of you. We long for that. So that's our invitation here. If you're joining us online or in the overflow, it's the same. Grab a Bible so that you can join us, see what God has for you, that it would work good in your life uh, this morning as each of us need that. So with our Bibles open, let's take one more moment and pray and ask that God would open up our hearts that we'd hear from him what he has. Would you join me in prayer? And hopefully you're praying quietly as well, asking. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for what you're speaking and what you would speak to us today. Would you grant us favor this morning? Would you be in this moment and work inside of us so that nothing would rob us of hearing your voice? Would you be the one that even right now just softens our heart, opens up our, our minds? Would you grant us favor this morning by the power of your spirit and the work of your work that would just meet us this morning taking truth and working your truth very presently and actively where we are, believing in your ability to do that, but trusting in it and asking for it afresh as we just thank you for this moment, thank you for a time that we have to seek you, and we ask for your favor. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we think about Second John. We think about walking through that this morning, and I pulled before you just the reality that there is truth that God gives us, that there is an incredible truth that he would open up to us. I find myself thinking as I say that of those words that maybe you would recognize, spoken on the very day that Jesus died on the cross, where Pilate asked the question, what is truth? I mean, what is that? I mean, what does that even look like? Pilate, the one who would condemn him and in many ways push him into that space, he says that to Jesus, even in a question and a statement. But he does so actually in response to a statement that Jesus makes. So backing up a verse there in the Gospel of John, it says it this way, that Jesus had answered Pilate and said, for this cause I was born and for this cause I have come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. I want you just to let that just land for just a moment. He says, this is why I've come. This is what I'm doing. I, I'm coming to, to, to just bring this, to bear witness, to cause this, to bring light to this. And he says, everybody, everybody who's of the truth will hear his voice. Everybody who is that you know, we'll respond to that. We think about that this morning, and we think about just the, the question that Pilate asked, what is truth? And he's the one that spoke it immortally there, recorded for us in Scripture. But it's been spoken millions of times since that point in time. Or people look at our world, wrestling. So, so what is real? What's true? What's, what's worth life? Where, what, what is actually happening? What is actually a part of that? And that wrestle for truth is fundamental inside of us, and yet that's exactly what we need to see this morning. We think about here in 2 John, and five times in the mix of the four verses we're going to overview this morning, he holds that word out, truth. So let's read through the section we're going to cover this morning, highlighting again as we do it the five spaces where that word is found. Notice with me as it begins, verse 1 of 2 John, says, The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth. And not only I, but also all those who have known the truth because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. 
I rejoice greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth as we've received commandment from the Father. Wow. Well, lots of little things that are found in those places, but obviously, if you're paying attention and I'm pointing it out to you, truth is there. Truth, 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 he says it over and over again, that really roots us and draws us into the things that we need to see in the text and that which God would speak into our lives in a way that would just meet us in land today. Well, we probably ought to just begin with kind of defining that. So what do we mean? What do we mean, truth? Well, that's actually quite a big question, but let's be very simplistic about it. Well, the question, the answer of it is Jesus. I mean, Jesus is truth, and yet it's more than that. It's the gospel. It's the Bible that points all of that out. Track with me just for a moment. So Jesus gives it to us in that well-known verse in John 14, 6, when he said, I am the way, the truth, he says, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus says, I'm it. I'm not a truth. I'm the truth. That when you think about whatever this thing truth is, he says, I I am it. I am, that is what I am. That is what I do. That is what I'm working. Now, that reality, again, defines everything, and everything that is that connects to that But we think about Jesus being the truth, and we understand that it's his work also accomplished for us, that nature of the gospel of truth that he's working, that we've celebrated this morning in communion. Think about it in Colossians, where it says it this way, that we have a hope which is laid up for you in heaven, which you heard before, he says, in the word of the truth of the gospel. He says, you know, we have this, we've heard this word. We've heard this word that is a word of truth, that is the good news, that is the good news of Christ, that is the good news of Jesus, that is the good news of the death and resurrection of Christ. It's the gospel that speaks this into us, and he says we've heard that, and it comes from that that the gospel is that. In fact, in Ephesians, I like it, he says a very similar thing. It says, in him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel, of salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Since you believed, you trusted Him, you heard this, you heard the gospel, the word of truth that is the gospel, and, and, and that became your salvation, that He works that inside you. The nature of that's incredible, but with that, understand, that's what we have recorded for us. We have here in your hands the word of God, and when Jesus was praying in John 17, He says, sanctify them by your truth, your word. Your word is that. Your word is truth. So we think about this this morning, and in a very simplistic way, you know, we're trying to define. So what are we saying when we say truth? What is it that we're talking about? Well, we are talking about Jesus and the gospel and the word of God, but it's not as if we're talking about a number of separate things. It's as if truth itself encompasses all of that that what truth is, is rooted in Christ and, and everything. This book, the Bible you have in your hand, it's about Jesus. Everything in here points to it, and everything in here points to the cross. Everything takes us to the, to, to the weight and the wonder of the gospel so that we'd understand truth itself is all of that. I think about it this way. Maybe that makes sense, maybe a little bit more philosophical than some of you want to track, but you know, those who try to define this and think about even what this looks like would say it in different ways. James Montgomery Boyce says it this way. He says, truth, it all holds together. There is no phase of truth that is not related to every other phase of truth. All things that are true are part of the truth and stand in proper relationship to God who himself is the the truth. He says, you know, when you think about truth, it's it's all of that. It's, it's, It's all found together. Francis Schaeffer said, Christianity is not a series of truths in the plural, but rather truth spelled with a capital T. It's not as if we celebrate truths as if there's a bunch of truths. It's like, no, there's truth. And that truth is the gospel. That truth is that which the Bible is speaking. That truth is Christ. Well, we could go a lot further down that road, but it's enough for us just to pause there and just with that definition say that's what he's holding out to us. He's wanting to talk to us about truth, about Christ, about what he is to us, and this aspect of him that is genuine, 
firm, that is true and not a lie, that is trustworthy and solid, and what that is into our lives. So what is it? What is it he's highlighting for us? Well, John writes it, and again, notice as it says it in verse 1. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all those who have known the truth. So John, the apostle, is writing this, and he highlights there this incredible connection that flows through truth. If you were with us last week, we talked a little bit about this letter. It is possible that this letter is written to an, a lady and her family. It could be that way, and it would be wonderfully true and working that way if it wants to land that way. But many Bible students, myself included, look at this as really speaking in metaphor, that he was writing perhaps during a persecuted time in church history that you know, letters themselves would have been censored and worked through. And so in this speaking, not to just a, a person, but writing probably to a church, writing to you know, this elect lady, this, this one that would be this, and speaking to a church in the midst of those seasons that would be incredibly difficult and highlighting this wonderful reality highlighting to one there that here we are, we have this incredible connection. We have this incredible connection that is given to us in truth. Think about that just for a second. In truth, he does that. It's worth noting that that connection that is truth leads us into this incredible love of God. So he says it that way, and again, you can see it, where he says, you know, that I, whom I love in truth, it's like he's writing, he says, I love you. I mean, I absolutely love you, but it's, it's, it's in this truth that we have that the love is found. He says, not just me, I'm not the only one. Like everybody who's of the truth loves you. Everybody who, who has that is this incredible space where we are connected into that. Now, as I want you to think about this for a moment, I want to make sure we're clear on it. We're speaking about that which is true in the body of Christ. That is universal for all who are part of the body of Christ. We're not talking about the experience of it, nor necessarily that the practice and all of that. That's actually going to come in the next section here in 2 John. We're talking about that which exists, that is true, that he's able to say it with such firmness that he says, you know, I love you. I, I, I love you genuinely. I love you in truth, but it's not just me, but also all those who have known the truth. All? Yeah, all is all. All is full. All is all of us in the midst of this. Well, let me give it to you in a couple of the verses. If it's helpful, think about it this way. Peter would write about the same reality in 1 Peter 2. He says, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren. He says, since this is what's happened, since you have obeyed that, since you have obeyed the truth that God has worked through the Spirit, he says, here's what I get to talk to you about, that you've purified your souls, and now you have this sincere. And the word sincere there has the idea of real, of genuine, of authentic, and it really does exist, that now you've been brought into this. And that is true. If you're a follower of Jesus, that's true. That is where we are. Now, don't miss it. It doesn't mean we don't need to still work on practicing that, and that's exactly what Peter says. In the next verse, he says, because that's true, now love one another fervently. Like, you know, because you have, because we're rooted in this, because we're brought into the love of God, because we're connected as a body of Christ, yes, we ought to live that out in a very practical way. But before we talk about practical, I just want to again highlight the genuine real deal. Like, that's where we are. We have been connected into this place where if you're a follower of Jesus, that the truth is that we have him and that has brought us into a genuine relationship with God and a genuine relationship with one another. Think about it this way as he goes on. He would tell us in uh, chapter 2, he says, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You are his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which is just a mouthful of wonderful things. It says, this is who you are. You were that. This is now what you are to shine how incredible our God is. He says, you were once not a people, but now are now the people of God who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. 
He says, you are now, like right now, you're God's people. You are God's people. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you have believed upon him, this isn't something that he's asking you to create. He's inviting you to recognize is wonderfully and gloriously true. Like this is who we are. And this radically and wonderfully connects us. Dave Guzik says it this way. He says, this shows that what binds Christians together is not social compatibility or political compatibility or class compatibility. What binds us together is a common truth. It is why truth is so important to Christians. I mean, that which unites us is Christ. That which unites us is the truth of Christ, and it just blows through every other thing. I mean, this is that which would make us all connected in Christ, and it's so wonderful. I don't know if you ever think about it. I don't know if you ever sit there and just with awe and wonder, even sitting in this sanctuary this morning, looking over at some people, and maybe in your altogether quiet, honest voice saying, if it wasn't for Jesus, I'd have nothing to do with you. Like, we are not, we are not alike. We, are not, we, we, don't, we don't like to do the same things. We don't have the same, we're not the same age. We, I mean, there are so many things that divide us. But right now we're united. And it is because of Christ. And it's because of him. So that right now we have this genuine, authentic life in God that has brought us together to be the people of God. And that is true. That is real. That is genuine. That's the, the thing that God would, would remind us of, and it's a, a weight that just kind of moves into this moment. Now, it probably is not a surprise, if you could think it through, if this indeed is a letter written in a time of genuine persecution, how good that is just to be reminded, hey, this is who we are, and you are connected. You are genuinely, authentically a part of the people of truth. Like, this is what we are. Everybody who is of the truth, everybody who is of the truth, we, we are connected in the love of God. And so that you are loved. We are in the love of God. We are in that space that, that is not about our experience right now, nor about our practice. We need to grow in all of that. But this is true. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is true. This is where we are. This is what we are. This exists right now. This is genuinely, authentically true that we are connected because of Christ, because of what he's done. And that's a wonder. That's a joy that's meant to just meet us right now, that's meant to draw us to this and again, see that it exists today. It's not something you are being invited or asked to make happen or create it. You can't, but it is firmly true. We are connected in Christ. We are connected in this amazing way. And, and as he's highlighting that, as he's telling us this, he's saying, hey, I'm just reminding you that it's who you are. You are loved. And, and everybody who's a follower of Jesus, we are connected together and we love each other in Christ. We have a genuine love that will prove more and more true as we enter into eternity. But today it's real. Today it's real. It is who we are. It is what we are, which is incredibly joyful. Add to that, so we have this idea that in verse 1 that we are loved and, and, and everybody who's of the truth you know, has this love, we are connected together, and then he just says it this way in verse 2, because, the reason that's true, is because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. Wow. Let's read that whole sentence one more time. It says, to the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth. Not only I, but also all those who have known the truth because of the truth, which abides in us and will be with us forever. So we have this incredible connection. We have this life of God in Christ. We have this connection that is indeed a connection of love. And now he just wants to invite us to see that that truth abides in us, abides in us. Now, make sure you're paying attention because if you're not careful, you're going to go wrong with this. So we think about the word abide, and it's a great word. And sometimes when God uses the word abide, he's challenging us to abide. So John 15, right, where Jesus says, hey, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If, he says, 
you abide in me and I in you, you'll bear good fruit. And so sometimes when we hear the word abide, it just is immediately uh, we go there. We think about, okay, I need to have this active dependence on God, but you know, if I'm not depending on him well, I might not be fruitful, and that's genuinely and authentically true. But that's not this. This isn't you abiding in Christ. This is Christ and his truth abiding in you. This is where he's saying right now, here's where you are right now. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you're genuinely his, then Christ in you is real. I mean, there's this Christ in you, this authentic life that you have in Christ. It's the work of the gospel inside of you, and it is firm. It's abiding in you. It's not moving. It doesn't change you know, with the day of the week or the month of the year. It doesn't move with moods or feelings. It's there. It's a solid truth that if we're in Christ, this gospel, this wonder connects us and holds us. In fact, he adds to it again. Not only does it abide, verse 2, because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. Truth, the gospel, Christ, the celebration of what it is to be in Christ is to see this that is absolutely firm, that is unmovable, unshakable, unchangeable, this reality that in a world that is so changeable and places that are so movable to find that that cannot move away. So a moment ago, I gave you this verse in 1 Peter, and we talked about how it tells us that since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, in sincere love of the brethren. So Peter's saying the same thing. And interesting enough, maybe writing in some similar context. 1 Peter is also one that is a letter that seems to be written during persecution. And so kind of highlighting the same thing, like this is who you are. This is what you are. You, you are those who've been brought into this great place. Then he goes on to say this. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God which lives and it abides forever. So, Holy Spirit pointing out the same reality there, in other words, that'll again just help you think this through. So, follower of Jesus, one who's believed upon Jesus this morning, one who has this in your life, understand this that which has brought us to life. The word of the gospel, the truth of Christ, it doesn't change. The word of the gospel in Christ, what it is, it is incorruptible. It doesn't, it doesn't break, it doesn't move, it doesn't rust, it doesn't change, it doesn't shake. It, there's not anything that can, can touch the weight and the wonder of what Christ is for us. There is this place that he says, it absolutely lives and abides forever. Then he goes to quote from Isaiah 40, he says, because all flesh is as grass and all the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls away. Pretty simple illustration, but think it through. I mean, we're in that season, right? It's, we're moving into the fall, you know, kind of have these cooler weather coming and leaves are beginning to change. Things are beginning to move this way and you understand how it works, right? Things that can be beautiful, a flower, a, 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 a lawn, I mean, you begin to move into seasons and you recognize, hey, those change. It can happen in a moment. Something can be really, really beautiful in our world, and yet there are seasons that they can then go and die. And, and it, everything has that capability within the world of men. But he's wanting to highlight that that is not true of the gospel. That is not true uh, of what you and I are holding on to this morning, because everything changes. You know, he says, right now, he says, all the glory of man is as the flower of grass, and that is just worth seeing for a moment. There's not anything that is man-created, that is the accomplishment of man that you wouldn't say, that's temporary, and it's going to go away. It can, it, you know, everything that, that we are can move and does move. I think about how it words it in the book of Hebrews, that everything that can be shaken is shaken. And I don't know where that lands for you right now. Maybe you, you, you feel that or maybe you don't, but maybe in, in something that's happening in your world right now, you are aware of how quickly things can change, 
how something that seemed solid to you a moment ago, maybe it's your job that you thought was always going to be there and now it's not. Maybe it's some stream of income that you thought you could firmly trust in and now is finding itself questionable. Maybe it's your health that you always thought, man, and then all of a sudden it's like, wait, that's, wait, this, this is, this is actually something that could, well, I don't know what it would be, but there are so many things in the world that at times we can realize how flimsy the, the things are in this, in this life, how flimsy are the things at times we trust in, and it's to that space that what Peter's telling us, then what John is telling us is, that is not true of the gospel. That is not true of what Christ is in you. There's nothing that can change it. It cannot be shaken. It cannot be moved. There's not anything that can move it away. He simply goes on. He says, you know, but it's by the word of the Lord. It endures forever. He says, this is the word by which the gospel was preached to you. This is that which is firm. This is that which is just absolutely solid. This is that which is absolutely trustworthy. This is that that you could find life in doesn't change. Jesus doesn't change, right? I mean, I think about that passage in Hebrews that tells us that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That we don't look at it and think, okay, well, tomorrow he might be different. I mean, yeah, today, no, there's a firmness in who he is. We talked about it a little bit last week, but I just want to highlight it. In Romans 8, it gives us this perspective at the end of a pretty incredible argument and says, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He says, I'm persuaded. I am full, I fu- I'm fully convinced. There's nothing. There's nothing. There's not anything that could come there's not anything that could happen. There's not any you know, situation that could happen in our life or in our world that would cause this to be in doubt, that would cause this to be in question. It cannot move. It cannot shake. It cannot change. It is firmly fixed and wonderfully so. So as he's highlighting this, John is writing this to his people. He says, hey, we have that. You have this word, you have this word of the gospel, you have this truth that is there in our lives, and it is with us forever. It's with us today, so that right now, right here at this moment, the gospel, the power of Christ is true in us, and if you are his this morning, he is in you, and that is not going to change, no matter what comes tomorrow, no matter what comes tomorrow or next week. This is absolutely true. It's true. It is trustworthy. It is gloriously trustworthy where you could hold on to this that would give you hope. I don't know where that lands for you this morning. Again, our lives are in different spaces. Some of you whole already, this is a, a big part of your days, but others, you ha- kind of lose sight of it. Sometimes because you, you, there's so many things you trust in. And maybe they all feel trustworthy right now. Maybe your job, your health, your relationships, they're all like, yeah, man, they're all really, really solid until one of those begins to move. And then you find out, wait, like, wait, wait. <laughs> this, is, this, this thing's a little bit more flimsy than I thought it was. I mean, you know, and, and you begin to, okay, well, wait. Okay, this is everything, but this isn't. The gospel, and, and it's the most important thing. And it's the thing that secures us for eternity. It's our life that is with Christ forever. And there's something glorious in it that invites us to to recognize that, to find ourselves secured and rooted in Christ because of who he is. So we have this relationship. We're connected in Christ. We have it inside us. It's abiding with us forever. And then he just highlights that it's a blessing into our lives. So we get to the section that it begins the letter. It's found in almost every New Testament letter that you have it there in verse 3 that some of yours will even just say, you know, the blessing. It'll say, you know, grace, mercy, and peace will be with you from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. It's a greeting. It's a blessing. And it's a wonderful one that is found again in almost every New Testament letter. Now, if you've been with us for any section of time, you might know where I am on this. Not everybody agrees, and so good Bible students can disagree. Some look at these things and think, okay, well, maybe it's just simple. Maybe they're greetings. Maybe they're connected greetings that connect Jews and, G- and, and Gentiles. 
I personally believe that every one of these greetings that are found in the New Testament are rooted in a blessing that's found in the Old Testament. So in Numbers chapter 6, it reads it this way, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Now, I know you guys know that. I mean, especially if you go here, because that's how we end almost every service. On Sundays, we, we get to the end of the service, and I'll say, okay, I'm just going to you know, kind of speak this blessing over you, and this is where it's found. It is found in Numbers chapter 6, and interestingly enough, he says, here's what I, I want God to bless you. I want him to keep you. I want his face to shine on you, and if that happens, to the extent that happens, you're going to get grace, and you're going to get peace. I would tell you that I think the New Testament references to grace and peace are kind of a simple statement of the same thing. They are basically saying the same thing in different words, that they're not magic words, it's just a glorious reality, that God upon us, in Christ, in God, we get grace and we get peace. We get this incredible favor. Now, it's worth noting, as we're thinking about this blessing that's found there in number six, that which preceded it was God instructing Moses. He told Moses, saying, speak to Aaron and his son, saying, this is the way that you shall bless the children of Israel. And then he gives them the blessing. He said, when you bless them, this is the blessing. This is the blessing that I want them to hear from me. This is how you're, what you're supposed to say in that blessing. And then God goes on to say, so they shall put my name on the children of Israel, and I will bless them. So the point of the blessing isn't, again, a magic uh, kind of a moment. It's not, you know, some kind of incantation. It's this reminder of who God is. It's this reminder. Of this it says, if, if, if they could know my favor, if they could be reminded of me, I will be the one that will bless them. I will be the one that brings them into that. And I absolutely love that. I find that incredibly glorious. And so, again, that's why we end our Sunday morning services that way. And I could just quickly highlight, again, I personally, again, think that almost every New Testament letter that's written highlights this reality, that it's saying the same thing in different words, grace to you and peace to you from God. That it's God upon you, it's God's favor upon you that would bring you into that reality, which is an incredibly glorious thing. Well, again, as you notice this one here, make sure you see the same thing. It's God. The blessing is coming from him. The blessing is him upon us. So he would say it this way in verse 3. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with you. Notice, from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father. So the blessing is God. The blessing is God upon you. The blessing is Christ upon you. And there's some cool theological weight in here that he connects, obviously, Jesus as the Son of God, as God, that they're fully in the blessing and uh, definitely highlighting the, the deity of Christ, the wonder of Christ, but in a very simple way, just letting us know again, it's the blessing. It's, it, it's God's blessing upon our lives. So grace and peace. Grace is the idea that God treats us as we don't deserve to be treated. Uh, grace is God giving us riches. His, what some have said, you know, kind of a good definition of grace is God's riches at Christ's expense, which is grace. It is, it, it's that, that is that, and that brings us into peace, a place of tranquility and kind, just rest. It's never reversed. You never get peace and grace. It's always grace and peace. It always flows in that order because the only way you can have peace is to be one that's walking in his grace. Well, all that simply to highlight much that we've talked about before in other days, one of the things I just want to quickly highlight is here we have an extra word that is different from most of the blessings that are found in the New Testament. In fact, I'll just put it up on the screen so we can just look at it. So we have grace and peace that are be there, that comes from God, that, that is this, but then we have this addition that is found here in 2 John. Now, in all the letters of uh, the New Testament that have the blessing in there in one form or another, four times, four times, mercy is included. That it's grace, mercy, and peace. It's here in 2 John that it's found in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. Significant. I think very, very significant. If you know your Bible, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, those are what's sometimes called the pastoral letters. Uh, letters written to pastors and written to churches to give them instruction uh, in, into the season that they're living in. It's definitely one of the things that make us look at Second John and think, okay, I don't think we're talking to a lady. I think we're talking to a church. I think we're, I think we're, I think we're speaking into that moment. 
Well, all that simply does, you know, is, is cause us to walk around that for a moment, but then to ask a question. And it's a question that God doesn't give us the answer for, so it's one that you're just going to have to think through, and I'll give you a couple ideas, but it's probably bigger than that. So why? Why, when he's writing to Timothy and Titus, and now here in 2 John, does he include the word mercy and the blessing when it's not found in the other spaces where the word bless, the blessings are found? Now, don't misunderstand this. I want to say it clearly. Where it's not found, where you look at the book of Philippians or Galatians or Ephesians or Colossians, and you'd find the, the blessings that are in there, I would say that mercy is encapsulated in the idea of grace. That if you're going to get grace, you're also getting mercy. That, you know, that, that, that we get saved, for by grace we have been saved, that, you know, not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. That includes that God is not giving us what we deserve, which is the idea of mercy. So it's not that they're non-existent in those places as if they weren't getting mercy, and now in these spaces we are getting mercy. Now, I would say it's always found. But here it is highlighted, and the question is why? Well, again, I don't know the answer couple possibilities. It could be that sometimes in the place of serving God, we are harder on ourselves than sometimes we ought to be. True enough story that most people in ministry struggle and, and struggle with the sense of failure and, and, and things that are in there. So it could be in the midst of it, just saying, hey, God is not giving you that way. In fact, Paul would say, hey, the same way we've you know, received mercy, that's how we get to do ministry. So it could be a highlight just to speaking to, of that in that reality, or it could also be a reminder that when we think about doing church, that mercy is essential in the way that we do it, that we are a people where mercy is found. Think about it this way. So, you know, we, we, we get to read that verse. Even some of you reading this morning, you were reading in Romans 12, where kind of in this transition in Romans, it comes and says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Says, I'm pleading with you because God's mercy is so big. Because the way that God is dealing with us is he is dealing with us in mercy. Charles Spurgeon said, God's mercy is so great that you may sooner drain the sea of its water or deprive the sun of its light or make space too narrow than diminish the great mercy of God. He's massive. His mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. We get to have this incredible place of recognizing the mercy of God. And as followers of God, that's something we're supposed to be knowing. Colossians gives it to us this way. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, and long-suffering. Since this is who we are, Make sure that that's what we're walking in. Make sure that's what we're expressing in the midst of it. Goes on to say that we are to be bearing with one another, forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against one another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. So there in Colossians, it highlights one of those biblical realities. It's a big one. That if you're a follower of Jesus, you've been forgiven. You have mercy. God is not treating you the way you ought to be treated. You're not getting what you deserve. But when Jesus offers that to us, he connects it and says, you know, as, as we get that, we are to give that same mercy to other people. So that when Jesus would tell us, hey, forgive me of my sins, forgive me of my debts, as I forgive those who sinned against me, that there is this place that because we receive mercy, we are meant to be merciful. Now, here's a true story. True story, not all Christians are. I mean, sometimes we, we mess up. Sometimes we're not as merciful as we ought to be. That's true. And, and maybe right now you're like, Jim, I, I could tell you stories uh, of, of Christians that aren't merciful. That's probably true, and I'm sorry. But can I also tell you something? It's the only place in this world you'll find it. It's the only place in this world you'll find it. Our, our world has a lot of other things, places of quote-unquote acceptance uh, of, of who people is, but it's never really acceptance. It's always much more divisive than it is acceptance, and it's not really mercy. Mercy means that we would meet you not in a place of, you know, being okay with your struggles or being okay that, that you, you know, of your sin, but a place that we would be able to say, because God has been merciful to me, then, then I am going to be merciful to you. And, and though it's not always expressed inside the church as it ought to be. I mean, it's obviously exhorting us to. I simply want to tell you, 
it's still better here than anywhere else. And even where it's not fully expressed as it ought to be, it is true that there's this blessing of God upon his people. There's this blessing of God that meets us in mercy. There's this blessing of God that draws us into this space where we get to find that to be life and help for us. That we get to say, hey, we once were not a people, but now we are the people of God. We didn't get mercy. That's not something we earned, but now, now we have. Now we have. Now we are a people who are known by mercy. Now we are a people that marks that. So somehow in the midst of what this is, the truth of God is working this in our lives. And so as he's giving this to us, he gives it as a weight of saying that that's what's going to be with us. Go back to the text so you make sure you see it. So verse 3, grace, mercy, and peace, and just note it, will be with you. Will be with you. It is a place of saying that this is true, that this is working, like this is, this is what's happening now, this is where it's going, this is what we have, and it's this incredible hope that would just give us a solid standing in that. So I, I, as you're tracking through this just for a moment, we think about these three times that truth is recorded here that we've highlighted in our text. These are the things that, that God's truth is to us. It connects us, it, it, it abides with us, and it is a source of blessing. Grace, mercy, peace come to us from God the Father in truth. That as we have this truth in us, this is what is ours, this is what's coming to our lives, incredibly glorious, incredibly real, wonderful for us to think through. But let's ask another question. So in the text, not only does he highlight the blessings of mercy, but kind of how that's supposed to be in our life. Go back to verse 1 and notice what he says. He says, to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all those who have known the truth. Truth is meant to be known, and it's meant to be known personally. It's one of the great weights of the, of the Greek scripture that the, you know, the New Testament is written in the Greek language. It's a much more just you know, solid language than sometimes the English language is. And so he uses a word that speaks of known, but it has the idea of what's, ex, what's called experiential knowledge. It's not head knowledge. There's Greek words that would say, hey, like, this is something you could know. Like, you could read a book and, and know something about something and not actually know it. You could read a, a book about Abraham Lincoln, but you don't know Abraham Lincoln, and he doesn't know you. I mean, there's no way to, to, to have a head knowledge that is this. No, we need an experiential knowledge that is this relationship with him, and that's exactly what he's inviting. I think about it in Timothy where it says, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to know the truth, come to have this knowledge, this personal experiential knowledge. Jesus said, everybody who's of the truth, they hear it. Everybody who's of the truth, they hear my voice. Everybody who's walking in this, we, we move into that relationship so that when he prays for us in John 17, he says, this is eternal life that, that they may know you. And again, he uses the same word, the idea of God to, to have this experiential, personal, relational knowledge of you. In fact, to think about it, when Jesus would speak of those who miss it, who he's going to reject at the, at the end of times. He says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And it's, again, just a, a way to understand. That's because there's a very big difference. Does he sovereignly know them? Yes. Do they, is he in that active relationship with them? No. doesn't know them. And so he's inviting us to that. He's inviting us to, to have that, to, to be those who are that, because this is what brings that about. Now, if that's who you are this morning, if you've entered into this space this morning and you, you don't just know about God, you know, it's like, well, I kind of, but you know him, you know him in Christ, then all that we've talked about this morning is yours. All that we've talked about this morning is what he has. But if that's not you this morning, then this is where you need to come to have this experiential knowledge so we can say, okay, that's what brings us into everything that he has for us. Wow. So much more we could say there, but I need to keep moving. The last time that he uses the word truth in our text is there in verse 4. It says, I rejoice greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth 
as we've received commandment from the Father. So truth is meant to be something that we have because we know it, uh, because we know Christ, but it is meant to be walked in. It is meant to be that we become a people that don't just know it, but we live it. We, we walk it out. And so John is able to write this, and he says, I have, I have great joy. I have such great joy because I found some. Now, again, believing this letter is probably written to a church. It's as if somebody would be, you know, writing to me is the pastor of this church and says, I, I met some of your people. I met some people that go to Calvary Rosal, and they are truth lovers. Like, they are walking in truth, and that is incredible joy. That's what he's saying. It's this place that's speaking of the heart of God, the heart of, uh, of everything, saying that's what we're longing to have happen, that we would be a people that would actively walk in this, that we would be a people that would, would actively do that, and yet, I just quickly highlight, there's a, there's a, there's a blessing in the way it's recorded, but a sorrow. It says, I found some. I found some. Now, it could just be they just, they're just saying, hey, that, that I met some, but the reality is it's not always all. And, and yet there is that challenge that it would be so even now that would say, okay, if this is all that is true, if these things are mine, I don't want it just to be that I found some of your children walking in truth. I want it to be all of us because that's exactly what God has told us to do, that he gives it to us that way in verse 4. He says, I rejoice greatly that I found some of your children walking in truth. But that's what we've received. That's the commandment that we have from the Father, that, that we are meant to do that, that we're meant to walk this out. Jesus would say it this way. He says, if you abide in my word, then you're my disciples indeed, and that you'll know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Like you walk in this. Like you walk in this. It's going to be that place that's going to bring freedom. It's going to bring life. That if you believe that, if it would be that, that would work that inside you, that's exactly where he would bring us into now. So tell you what, let's begin to wind it down this way. You can close your Bibles, notebooks if you want to for a moment. But as you do so, I want to take you back to where we began. So truth, truth. It's what Christ is to us. It's what the gospel is to us. But I think about this encounter that Jesus had with Pilate, and I just want you to try to be there for a moment. I'm going to read it to you. I'll put it on the screen, and, but I just want you just to listen. I want you to try to imagine it. I want you to, to step into the scene and feel the weight of what's being said. As he gives it to us, he says it this way. He says that, you know, Pilate entered into the praetorium, and again, he calls Jesus, and he says to him, so are you, are you the king of the Jews? That's what they've accused him of. That's what they've delivered Jesus up to. And so this is Pilate's first encounter with Jesus. He's like, so are you? Are you a king? Are you a king? Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him with a very interesting question. Are you speaking this for yourself about this? Or did others tell you this concerning me? Do you really want to know? Are you asking me because you want to? It's a probing question, by the way. It's one of those incredible questions like, so why are you asking? do you really want to know? Are you asking because you want to know the truth, or are you just repeating what somebody else has said? That's, that's, that's a very penetrating question, by the way. Many people ask questions, and they really don't want the answers. Sadly, Pilate doesn't really want the answer, and, and sometimes people ask us questions, and they don't really want the answer, and I love that Jesus just highlights, says, do, you, do you really want to know? Pilate responds, and he just, you know, says, am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you to me. What did you do? Like, what have you done? So now Jesus goes back to his first question. Are you a king? Instead of answering that question directly, he talks about his kingdom. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. The kingdom that you're thinking about, it's not a worldly kingdom. It's not, it's not one that you fight wars over. It's not how it works. That's the kingdom that I'm a part of is not that at all. Well, Pilate kind of picks it up. He's saying, so you are saying you're a king. <laughs> I mean, I just, just want to make sure I'm clear on this. I mean, so are you, Jesus, a king? And Jesus answers and said, you rightly say that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Yeah, I'm a king but my kingdom is a different kingdom. It's a kingdom that's based in truth. It's a kingdom that is, is building a world uh, and a truth that is entirely different from it. That's why I came. That's what I've come to do. And if people are of the truth, they'll hear my voice. 
Pilate's response is simply to say, so what is that? (laughs) What is truth? Sadly, it's not a question that he waited around for the answer for because he wasn't really wanting to know. That's how he ends the conversation. Like, (laughs) what is that? Like, what's truth? I mean, how does that even work? And yet I found myself thinking, if you could just think this through with me as we close, you're really in one of those categories or the other. Either you're in that category where Jesus says, everyone who's of the truth hears my voice, or you're in the category this morning with Pilate saying, I don't even know what truth is. What is that? What is that? Because that separates everything right now in our world. That's where we come this morning, and he's inviting us into a space where we would be those who would hold to and recognize the wonder of the truth that we have. So let's do this. Let's take a quick moment and just ask God to meet us in that. You know, ask him to just meet you in in the weight of what's been spoken. And I don't know where it lands for you this morning. Maybe it's highlighting the things that you just needed to know. Maybe into your world, what you needed to be reminded of, of that which is solid, unchangeable, immovable in Christ. Or maybe you're outside of that. Maybe you're in the kind of the camp of Pilate, and we just want to invite you into it. There is truth. There's the gospel of truth that we invite you into this morning. We invite you into a space of believing, knowing, walking in, and having that. So would you take a moment, talk to the Lord about that in prayer? I'll do the same, just quietly asking him for his favor, and then we'll close together in worship in just a moment. Jesus, you really are the truth. And I thank you in a world that's so shifting and changing and upside down at times that you do not change who you are, who you will be, where we're going, unshakable. God, for those who are yours, may you cause us just to be those who recognize that we know this. We are those who who hear your voice. And may it wash over us in life that draws us into blessing even this morning. And Lord, for any that are outside of that, we cry out for them to come to know you today. God, thank you for your ways. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your truth. We just honor you now. In Jesus' name, amen.